It's your daily 10-minute business and finance news wrap for this Monday, the 14th of August, 2023. Later on Market Day, we'll speak with George Baburis from K2 Asset Management. But first to Bendigo and Adelaide Bank, which posted a record full-year cash profit of $577 million. I spoke with its CEO, Marnie Baker, earlier. Marnie, first of all, how would you describe the operating environment last financial year and to what extent has it changed or remained the same now? Yeah, I think I would define the characteristics, especially of the uh, lending environment in the last 12 months as being one of uh, cashback offers, um, which you know we haven't participated in. Uh, you know, given that we didn't think it was necessarily the right thing, um, you know, by the business and probably not importantly, uh, perhaps not the right thing by customers as well. Um, but we're seeing, you know, a bit of a move that, of that competition into the uh, the deposit side of the business now, you know, as organisations are looking to pay down their term funding facilities over the next uh, the next 12 months. So on that balance between mortgages and deposits, how do you look at setting it and getting it right? Yeah, well, we, we're fortunate that we have a number of channels available to us, both on the lending side and the deposit side. Um, as you know, Ricardo, you know, we you know, remain around 70% retail deposit funded. Uh, it's really important to us as an organisation and we have a unique ability in a sense of community bank channel to be able to raise deposits through that channel and more recently through uh, our up digital bank as well which is uh, you know it just hit 1.5 billion dollars um, in deposits uh, so we, we have a number of channels you know available to us and we're able to you know I'll say pivot if, if need be uh, amongst those channels both on the deposit side and the, the lending side to be able to balance that so by holding back on being super competitive mortgages, is that one way you've managed to increase your net interest margin, I guess? And how, you know, and that happens at the same time as other banks like Suncorp and the Commonwealth Bank has, has seen it fall in the last half. And is this something that can be maintained? Yeah, you're right. I mean, we, you know, we decided, like I said, not to participate in some of that extreme sort of pricing by way of cashbacks, you know, in the early part of the year. And as such... Uh, we didn't need to raise deposits to, you know, to offset uh, that lending, and that has had a, you know, a positive contribution to uh, our margin. You know, we do expect going forward um, that we are going to see, you know, our funding costs increase slightly, uh, as you would expect, you know, as we are looking to, you know, to repay uh, the term funding facility, which was, you know, basically a zero cost. So you are going to see an increase there but we manage that and that's a part of how we do manage our assets and liabilities and our interest rate risk management in the bank. Um, I know that you guys are forecasting that we are pretty much at the peak or near the peak in interest rates. Um, given that we've seen 12 rate rises from the from the central bank uh, this uh, cycle, how are your borrowers coping with all those increases and are you worried about that so-called mortgage cliff? Yeah, so, you know, we do think that we are near peak uh, in relation to, you know, cash rate uh, increases. Uh, and we have been watching that, you know, very closely. You know, it, it has two two sides to it, I suppose. It's tough for borrowers, but if you think about those, 
you know, deposit holders who for, you know, the last, um, you know, decade or so really had, you know, extraordinary low uh, interest rates on their on their deposits. So now depositors are, are getting a better return for their deposits with the bank. Um, but we are watching, um, you know, we are watching borrowers um, and especially those that are going from fixed to variable. Um, I'm not concerned uh, necessarily within our own book. We, we've been working with our uh, with our borrowers for for many months now uh, in the lead up uh, to them coming off fixed rates, and you know they, they had built up 84% of our borrowers had, had built up financial buffers. 41% of those had repayments in advance of you know of 12 months, and 31% in advance of three years. Um, and so, you know, had been preparing uh, for coming off fixed rates. And, you know, that's not to say that there isn't going to be, you know, those that will need our, our assistance. And we are staying close with those borrowers, you know, because we are in the business of actually keeping people in their homes, not kicking them out of their homes. Uh, the landscape for fraud and cybercrime continues to evolve. How so? And what's the bank doing about it? Yeah, look, it's, you know, it has been concerning. You know, I, I think it took everyone by surprise just the veracity of scams and frauds, you know, in the last financial year. Um, and so, you know, it had everyone from from telcos to social media platforms to banks, etc. you know, uh, thinking about what we needed to do to ensure that we were, you know, protecting the, the funds and the... And, and the you know um, information um, of customers better, uh, and so we've made quite a number of investments, made some changes within our own organisation. Where you know we're blocking high risk cryptocurrency um, payments. You know we've put in we've um, put in place uh, new rules and, and and rules that create a little bit of friction in the system. Of course, we're a part of the FCX exchange with other financial institutions. Uh, sharing uh, information so that we can, you know, stop funds from going outside, you know, of the of the system. Um, and of course, we've we've doubled the number of people in our financial crimes team um, to assist uh, customers so that we we can be very dynamic and make sure that we are responding very dynamically to you know customers who do find themselves in this situation. Two final quick questions: the banking division of SunCorp is it a viable business or acquisition for Bendigo? Oh, look, you know, the parties to that transaction, you know, have said that they're, they're looking for a review of the outcome from the ACCC. So um, I think I probably need to let that process uh, play out and it's a bit premature to um, speak of anything else at this point in time, Ricardo. And finally, what's your company's position on the Indigenous voice to Parliament? Why? And are you financially backing the campaign one way or the other? Uh, look, you know, I think it's important um, that uh, Indigenous Australians have, you know, a voice in relation to, you know, the policies and practices that actually, you know, do come out from from government. Um, no, we are not involved in the financial backing of any campaigns either way. Marnie Baker there, the CEO of the Bendigo and Adelaide Bank. Now, Market Day on the SBS On The Money podcast. The Australian share market didn't start the working week on a good note because it fell. The S&P ASX 200 down 0.9%, 7,277. I spoke with George Baburis. He is the head of research at K2 Asset Management. Yeah, um, good afternoon. Very quickly with Bendigo Adelaide Bank, uh, the cash profit is quite good. 
because partly this is an overgeneralisation. They didn't participate in the the mortgage uh, incentives and aggressive competition in the in the first three four months of this year from the major four banks in Macquarie. So that uh, led to their margins being protected somewhat as they weren't uh, chasing the new business as the other banks were. Uh, having said that, the other banks then stopped the discounting again uh, in that May, June, July period. But uh, but better go back with the beneficiaries of that. So they're getting more in their deposits. They protect their margins. It's just the outlook of uh, the the economy in Australia. It's a bit uneven out there, the landscape. And uh, the good news was pretty much priced in and uh, and it's just going to weigh on it a little bit. However, if they get the Suncorp deal, which is a bit of a left field, uh, that can be uh, quite accretive after some uh, some cost synergies there in the years ahead. But that's a big if uh, going forward. Um, are there any similar themes about the consumer with JB Hi-Fi's $480 million fully profit, um, which is down nearly 4%? Yeah, look, the, the JB Hi-Fi deal, high level, they grew sales in the fiscal 23 year. And uh, they did a, a remarkable job. They've been a, a remarkable job. They've been a good discretionary bellwether uh, when the economy is doing quite well. And they're clearly, uh, they're so well drilled, they're able to deliver, mar- they maintain their margins somewhat because it's a, it's, a, it's a choice to go to for the discounts. So a combination of discretionary retail, JB Hi-Fi do stand out versus their peers in the industry, very much versus uh, Harvey Norman, for example, in certain segments. And it's actually a great result for them and shows that that operating platform for the circa 210, 216 stores in Australia are really uh, the go-to place for households that are under cost of living pressure. So they've been able to migrate from a luxury item and now to a discount item. So the best of both worlds, but a very good set of numbers, to be fair, in an area that uh, is, is very challenged for discretionary retail. They're just two of a number of companies reporting today. Any others catch your eye? Just broadly, what's catching our eye is that margins are very hard to protect right across the board. So for the major banks, it's going to be very difficult for them to uh, to to basically put steps in to prevent the net interest margin pressure they're going to have going forward. And when you look at earnings, because this is a very, very busy week, just about a third of companies are going to report by market cap. Uh, it looks like the whole market's looking about for the six-month period. It's going to be broadly a flat to a small single-digit growth of earnings. It just shows you that there is some resilience out there versus where we thought we were going to be six months ago, but there are some challenges to get through. And that is why, uh, again, an overgeneralisation, the RBA will be sitting tight because it's got enough rate hikes in the system to see how they play out as there's some challenges and unevenness in the economy. But nevertheless, if you ask for these sort of numbers of earnings, say six months ago, you'd have taken them uh, any, any day of the week. The oil price is down, but it follows seven weeks of gains. That's the longest rally since mid-2022. I think the Australian Indi- um, Institute of Petroleum also said that the um, uh, national average petrol price last week reached a nine-month high. Uh, what's driving oil prices at the moment? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting one. So very quickly, globally, uh, the people saw that they expected some demand to pick up globally in the Western world and the emerging world. However, overgeneralisation again, uh, sorry to do this, but with China being weaker than expected, broadly demand coming off a little bit, so that rally doesn't have that stimulus. Having said that, if um, if demand drops off any further, one would think that one of the biggest OPEC uh, suppliers, uh, the Saudis, will cut production to maintain that price. They're really looking to get it towards that $90 a barrel, and if it fell under 80, you'd think there'd be some price cuts in there by the Saudis from OPEC uh, going forward just to protect their, uh, their their margins there. There is some complications out there. There's um, 
there's, there's obviously states like Russia and Venezuela and Iran that are getting supply out there, but there's you can't be trading with those. There's some there's some limits there. But uh, but in in broad terms, uh, had a good run up, and now you've got the LNG issue on the other side of it. But demand is is waning on the soft economic data just over the past week relative to where we were a couple of months ago. You mentioned briefly there China. How much of a concern is that right now? We've seen the iron ore price slump today. Um, the Australian dollar is at a near nine-month low. Um, there's more concerns about China's property sector coming out. What's your take on, on the way China's managing its way out of the, those extended pandemic lockdowns and the implications for Australia? And is that, has that all got something to do with the market falling today? In part, yes. It's a very complex number two economy in the world. It really has trouble really getting that post-pandemic rally to have some sustainability while dealing with the, the world's largest property bubble ever seen. And they've been cutting interest rates over there for two years, where the Western world has been increasing interest rates and tightening. And uh, that slowdown has, has got us by, a little bit by surprise. And that is why, as you say, the bulk commodity exporters are just weighing a little bit at the margin. But at the end of the day, um, it's probably easier to play China going forward with that extra stimulus coming and anticipated via suppliers of energy, uh, key metals, and supplies of bulk commodities going forward. But it is weighing on sentiment. The other thing very quickly is that a lot of investors haven't gone back to China. They've stayed in the Southeast Asian region. So the beneficiaries of not going to China to invest are economies like Vietnam, Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia. Singapore also benefits. And the biggest winner is Japan within the region uh, with, with what the issues going on with China. Very complicated, but they need to stimulate even more. They've been cutting rates again for two years and much more and more innovative uh, targeted stimulus to try and get sentiment to turn around somehow uh, in mainland China, which is proving a little bit difficult. Finally, so in this environment, where do you see the opportunities for investors at the moment? The opportunities for investors are to anticipate the following, that the RBA will have a long period of pause predominantly, but the soft landing, the engineering, i.e. the non-recessionary scenario, implies that rates are higher for longer. So if you're a saver, that's good. If you're a borrower, this is probably the maximum pain, just sustain another 12 to 18 months, you get rate cuts at the end into 2025. And having said all of that, it will be making a lot of headwinds out there, but key quality companies like JB Hi-Fi, Discretionary Retail, Macquarie Bank within financial services, Global Footprint are just two examples. Woodside, which has got LNG exports right around the world, they're the beneficiaries of it. Three different sectors, three ideas. So you've got to be a good stock picker to be able to find where there's less headwinds for those earnings relative to the others in that sector. So it's a bit of a balancing act for everyone out there. For Boris there from K2 Asset Management and a quick one on the FIFA Women's World Cup being held here in Australia. Airwallet says uh, it'll generate economic benefit of $7.66 billion so far. Raina Bosch spoke with Angela Jackson. She is an economist at Impacts Economics for More. So, look, I think when we look overall at the World Cup and hosting the World Cup, it's been a huge benefit, obviously, to the economy. Um, we've seen a lot of international visitors come. We've seen locals get out and about more and spend more. And figures released by Air Wallops estimate that seven that has added around $7.6 billion to our economy, which is just huge. Um, now, obviously, there are outlays associated with that and costs that government has picked up, but in this case, relatively small because we haven't had to necessarily build stadiums um, and the sort of athletes' villages and those other sort of aspects that uh, often come with these big sporting events. And how did Havolix come to that figure? 
So what our world wallet's done, as far as I can understand, is uh, they have tracked internationally and, and locally expenditure related to the World Cup. So looking at ticket sales, looking at foreign exchanges, uh, looking at the differences in retail and accommodation spend uh, this year uh, compared to previous years uh, to disassociate the impacts and to quantify the impact of the World Cup on our economy. Now, Angela, this discourse around a potential public holiday seems to be gaining some traction. A couple of government bodies seem to be backing it. What kind of an impact will that have on the economy? So generally speaking, obviously, a day off means that there isn't necessarily economic output ha- happening on that day. Um, and if we look at what sort of happens in terms of an average day, it's around $9 billion in terms of the overall economy. However, some of those costs are offset. So what we see is in some sectors, there's increases. So for example, in retail, in hospitality, we can see a real bump from having a public holiday. People aren't at work, so they're out spending, and that can be a real boom. Um, and at the same time, for other businesses, they can and often catch up on some of that lost output. So in terms of the cost to the economy, um, it's probably around $1.8 billion to $2 billion for a day off. Uh, the broader benefits, though, are in terms of well-being. We know that public holidays really do lift well-being across the economy and productivity. Having that day off can mean that we all get back to work and we can work a little bit harder uh, because we've had a bit more of a rest. Angela Jackson there from Impact Economics. This SBS on the Money stream is provided for informational purposes only. The content in this stream should not be understood as constituting advice or a recommendation. It is not personal advice and it does not consider your personal circumstances or objectives. You should contact a licensed professional before making any financial decision.